Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, here we go. We're going to, John chapter 12 is where we're at, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 19 tonight. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, it's Bible study. Those of you following up at home later on this week as we post this, it goes to our YouTube channel on Thursdays, and I think you can take it down as a podcast too and listen to it. Um, So, as we've been going through John, uh, the first 11 chapters of John, if you've noticed it is covered uh, the first three years of Jesus' ministry. It's specifically what, what John has covered here. He covers events, and we've been studying these all these weeks. He covers events that are not in what's called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means similar, similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not one of the synoptics. His is written very differently, and it covers a little bit of different territory. If you notice... In John, we've gone through things that you won't find in any of the Gospels, like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the adulterous woman, uh, Lazarus raising from the dead, um, the certain blind man, uh, and all those things are in the Gospel of John, but they're not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so John's got a, a different course now. And of course, we know the Gospel of John is known as the book of the seven signs, and the signs are given so that people may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, John now, beginning in chapter 12, as he's writing this and he's recording uh, the events of Jesus' life, now he's going to slow down the pace. And he's going to really slow down the pace. Where he's been covering three years of the the life of Jesus over the last 11 chapters, now he's going to slow down so much that this, right now he's going to cover in this chapter less than one week. And then when we get to chapters 13 to 20, that covers less than three days' time. So it really slows down. And when we get to chapter 13 all the way, you're going to see the long prayer of Jesus as he's in the Last Supper and as he's walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the things that when you get to, um, to these chapters now is everything changes in Jesus' ministry. He is going now from a public ministry where now he's got his final days with his disciples So now it goes to private mentorship. And so what he's going to tell us over the next six chapters and tell them is going to be really, really important. These are kind of like the last big, big deals that he wants them to know. When we pick up right now, we're getting to the moment now where he's about six days from the crucifixion. He's six days from the crucifixion, and he's only two miles away from trouble, which is Jerusalem. So we know now it's going to get pretty intense in his life, and Jesus knows that. I think I have five points for you tonight. There's about three bullets in one of the points. The first point I want to give you is this, and this kind of refresher from before. All believers will be with Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I know I ran out of fill-ins. We ran miscommunication. Sorry about that one. But um, all believers will be with Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now look at verse 1 and look at verse 2. And I covered this before, but we'll cover it again just to make sure. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now remember, Lazarus' two sisters, are the names are Mary and Martha, that's right, he's got those two sisters. So, here's what I want to point out again through these verses and with that point that we'll all be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Remember they summoned Jesus to go heal Lazarus, correct? Of course, we know Lazarus dies. Jesus comes in, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And when he says, do you believe this? You got to think about that statement. That's a big statement. Because every time you and I are put on the spot, share our faith, stand up for what we believe, stand up for what's morally right, the real question we should ask ourselves is, do I really believe this? Because if I'm backing off and I'm, I'm getting a little bit scared, my question to myself is, well, do I really believe this or do I not believe this? And so we should always firmly be set that we truly believe these things. Amen to that one? Now, Jesus, after he says all these things, brings Lazarus back from the dead. He splits for a little bit, then he comes back, and now he's at their house again, and now they have a dinner. Do you remember what we talked about this a couple weeks ago, or last week, or whenever that was? I don't remember, but maybe it was last week. You're nodding your head, so I'm going to assume it's last week. So, remember, the first time Jesus comes, he dies and he resurrects from the dead, right? Then he splits... He ascends to heaven. And the next time uh, he'll return is not in the second coming. He'll return in the rapture. He doesn't touch down on earth, but then he takes the Christians with him. But he takes the existing Christians with him, whatever time frame that is on earth, to what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Correct? Now, so you see, he's here, resurrects, and then he ascends, he's gone, and then he comes back, and we have a dinner. Same thing's happening right here with the family. It's the same parallel. Uh, totally right there. So we're going to get to one point when we're at the wedding supper of the Lamb and we're going to sit around there with every believer that has ever lived. Now think about which New Testament believer, Old Testament believer that you'd like to sit down and ask some questions to, right? I'd like to ask Jonah the question, what was it like in there? I mean, my question. The other question I'd like to ask, Peter, what was it like when you knew you, you denied Jesus and then, he, Jesus, and then you hear from everybody else, hey, Jesus wants to meet you over in Galilee. What did you feel like in that moment? I'd like to know these things because these are the real deal people that dealt with this. But here's what I want to say that I think hopefully comforts us and comforts us, maybe not tonight, but in our life. We're all going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, correct? Yes. Every believer, correct? Yes. Okay. There's going to be times in our life When we ask Jesus, would you heal this loved one or heal this person I care about a lot? Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he he doesn't. Do I know why? No, because I don't know all these things, and I'm not God. But here's what I I can bank on. I don't have to throw away my faith. I don't have to get mad at God. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just be encouraged and still have hope that one day that friend of mine, that believer of mine who did pass away, I'm going to see them again and we're going to sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen to that one? And so we can always have that kind of hope in our life that even when it doesn't come to pass the way we want it, we're still going to be there at that supper. And I think verse 1 and 2 is a great picture of that situation that we're all going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb one day in heaven. Now, Quick sidebar, Martha in verse 1 and 2, what is she doing? She is serving. Have we seen her serving at other times? You better believe we have. Now, turn, keep your marker right here and go to your left a little bit. Go to Luke chapter 10 and let's see real quick where she was serving before. Verse 38, Luke 10 verse 38. And when you're there, say I'm there. Okay, good. It says uh, in verse 38, now... As they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha, St. Martha we're talking about, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, 
listening to his words. So Mary is sitting down with Jesus, listening to him uh, teach. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Can anyone relate? Okay, good. And she came up to him. She comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. And don't we ever feel that way sometimes? How come those, how come people need to serve? How come I'm doing all this? Ever feel that way? Come on, have you? I have. I mean, uh, verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, question what's the good part that Mary is doing? She's doing the Lord. So I would say it probably means she's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto her, correct? So a primary purpose of our faith is always to sit at the feet of Jesus. Otherwise, if we don't do those things regularly, we're going to turn into Martha, who's distracted and irritated a lot. Any amens on that one, huh? And we don't want to walk around and be irritated believers, do we? Do we? Now, here's the big question. What is the difference between... Uh, uh, Martha in Luke 10 and the Martha we find serving in John 12. What's the difference? The difference is in Luke 10, she's irritated, right? While she's serving. In John 12, she's serving. Is she irritated? And the answer is no. So John inserts these things here to show us that something has changed in her life, correct? She is growing and we should all be growing. And we see that in her life right there. Now, moving on, point two, and that's this. We are to show our gratitude for what Jesus has done. We should always show our gratitude for what Jesus has done. Now, verse 3 says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So, we should show gratitude for what Jesus has done. Mary is very grateful for what Jesus has done to the point that just serving him a meal is not enough. Amen? She goes beyond that, and she's going to show her gratitude in this specific way. She brings in the perfume, pure nard, and she pours it over Jesus' feet. Now, Mary is breaking cultural norms, and I got three bullets in there to take you on these cultural norms and to fill in some blanks of what's going on here. The first thing on the bullet point there is that she gave Jesus her treasure. She gave Jesus her treasure, the first bullet point in your notes. Now, we're going to find out that that perfume is worth how much? 300 denarii. Now, for those of you newer to the scriptures or newer to studying the scriptures, uh, one denarii is the amount that you pay to a common worker in that day, just an everyday worker, one denarii. So 300 denarii of what that bottle of perfume is worth is the equivalent of about one year's wages. So that's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of money she's going to pour out on Jesus right there. So she's showing her gratitude. Now, I want you to understand this about that perfume. That perfume not only is worth a lot of money, that perfume is her dowry. So when she pours out that perfume, understand that she is now reducing her chances of ever getting married, which in that culture was a big, big deal. So the truly grateful heart we see in this woman, because she's thoroughly grateful for what Jesus done raising her brother from the dead, the truly grateful heart has no problem giving, has no problem tithing. Amen to that one? Now, the second bullet point is this. She breaks protocol. 
Now, she breaks protocol and she's ministering to Jesus with this perfume. She's giving thanks to him. She was expected to serve. This was the, 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 the culture. This is what she should be doing. But we found out in Luke 10, she broke protocol. She sits at his feet. And now she wants to be near Jesus again. So she's breaking all this protocol to give thanks to Jesus. And then the third bullet point is this. She worships Jesus. Now, why would I say that she worships Jesus? Because she, um, Mary lets down her hair, literally. Question, did women in that day let down their hair in public? The answer is no, they didn't do that. That was custom culture. You, you just don't do those things. But she lets her hair down. Now, why? Because she purrs the perfume over Jesus' feet. She takes her hair that she's let down, and she's drying his feet with her hair. Now, why would I say that's worship? Because think about this. When she pours the perfume over Jesus' feet, do Jesus' feet smell like stinky feet or like perfume now? Come on, perfume, not at your question, perfume. When she rubs her hair to wash, to rub off the perfume, what does her, smell, her hair smell like? Perfume. perfume, that is right. See, when we worship Jesus, when we get close to him, we're grateful, we take on the fragrance that's on Jesus onto ourselves. Amen to that one. And that's why worship is so important. Because we take on Jesus' attitude, we take on the fragrance, we take on all these things. Question, how did she get to his feet so easily? Now, get your 21st century mindset of eating dinner out of your mind. Because you and I sit at tables like this with our feet like that and get that out of your mind. The way they sat in that day was they would have these, it's called a triclinium. In chapter 13, we'll go in greater detail in it. But they would lay down on a pillow on their left side. They'd reach over, get the food. The table's about six inches to 10 inches high. They'd get the food. Their feet would all be sticking out the back like that. So when she comes in, she doesn't have to go under her table. She just goes behind Jesus. His feet are sticking out back there. She just pours the perfume on him. And so she does that back there. That's how easily she gets to his feet because that's just the way they sat and ate their food. Now, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Now, number three in your notes, and that's this. There will always be some who object to giving. And that's true too, right? Look at verse four and five. Now we're going to see Judas object to the giving. Verse four. But Judas Iscariot, now hold on for a second right there. Um, Iscariot, probably not like a last name. Um, there's a city called Carioth at that time. And so you take Carioth, the city, Iscariot, Ish, Carioth, Ish is the word for man. He could be Judas, the man from Carioth. Now we don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. There's another possibility called Ascara, but I don't have time to go into that one tonight. It's a very interesting one, but um, maybe, maybe some other time we'll go into that. So, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said this. Now, we, Judas is going to betray him, and here's what he says. He sees the perfume poured on Jesus' feet. Why? Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people. State question. On the front side, sounds real noble, doesn't it? Sounds really noble, doesn't it? Is it noble? No, we know because we know what Judas is all about. So Mark, in Mark's gospel of 14.4, he says that Judas said, why this waste? Why this waste? Like, why were you wasting this on Jesus' feet? Now, and that's, he, when he calls it waste, you've got to think about, many people look at, you know, our giving, our tithing to, to Jesus Christ and the mission, 
they view it as a waste of money, right? Many people view it that. We know we're investing in the kingdom of God and we're investing in eternity and we know there's, there's payback all through the spiritual realm. Now, Judas is the treasure of the money that's coming in to support the ministry of Jesus. Question, who gave the most money to support the ministry of Jesus, men or women? Women. Women were the biggest financial givers. And, and on average, I'll be honest with you, in church setting, when it comes to husband and wives, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, the women have no problem tithing and the men drag their feet. It's just what it is. Just what it is. But we got to get over that, guys. we got to get over that. we got to trust God. Now, so he's holding, he's holding the money box. How much was the perfume worth again? Who pointed that out again? Judas himself pointed it out. So <clears throat> we know he's stealing from the offering box. Now, is it possible? Just a question, because I can't prove this. Is it possible that Judas, over the years, has stolen so much money out of the offering box that 300 denarii would be able to be put back in and cover what he stole over the last so many years? Is it possible? I think it's possible. I can't tell you that it's a fact, but uh, I think it's possible. Now, in chapter 13, when Jesus exposes um, Judas as the betrayer, uh, we're going to go into greater de- a greater detail about this man's motives and the motives that we have to watch out for in our own life. Now, verse 6. Now, he said this. Remember, he said we should have sold this and given the poor. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Oh, now, we, now we find that Judas is living a double life, correct? He's got a private life. He's got a public life. So now we're finding out that this private life, this private self, is the self that's eventually going to sell Jesus out to the, the religious leaders for money. So you could kind of lean right now in thinking that money was kind of like Judas is Lord, is God in his life. Now, think about that. He's a thief. Money might be his God, but he's a thief. When you drove in the parking lot tonight, um, and those of you who've been here maybe, say if you've been here, ten, say, 10 years, you'll remember this. But the bars out front that we have to lock every night, you know those bars? Okay. Do you remember when we didn't have those bars? Okay. We didn't always have those bars. Uh, we put them in about, about five years ago, Danny. You probably put those in. Okay, about five years ago. He's a really good iron worker. He put those in. And, um, and so we put them in and because people were coming in at night when no one's here, driving around the backside of the back building and doing all kinds of illicit things in their cars back there. And we started to catch stuff like this. And then what they would do besides that is they'd go up in the back building, second floor, before we put the bar gates up there and everything, they'd go second floor, they'd go up to the top up there in the back building, the big upper room there, there's sound equipment stuff in there, and they would break the glass, go in, and they would steal equipment, pop it in their vehicles, and just drive out. And they were doing that. So we finally had no choice. You know, we have, it's the world we live in. You know, they, we had to put the bars up, put this in, lock it up at night, everything like that. But I want you to think about this. They were stealing from a church. Isn't that appalling? I mean, I can see stealing <laughs> to a point, okay? But they're stealing from a church, and they're stealing from God. It's like, oh, my God, they're stealing from God. But wait a minute. Didn't Malachi say when we don't tithe, we steal from God? Yes. Wow. 
Did that one hurt? <laughs> Did you just feel that one? <laughs> yeah, it's no difference. It's the same thing, really. But what belongs to God belongs to God, right? It's his. It's not mine. Now, number, number four in your notes. Mary is the only one who got it. She's the only one who got it. Got what, Jim? Well, you'll see right here. Verse 7. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone. Because remember, Judas is complaining, right? Judas is criticizing her, right? And he says, Jesus stands up and says, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Big words right there. Verse 8. For you always have the poor with you. That's an interesting statement, huh? But you do not always have me. Huh, that's interesting. Now, Mary's the only one who seems to get it. Now, wh wh what's going on here? Judas is complaining <clears throat> that she's, she, wasted, she wasted the money. Could have been given to the poor. Now, is he lying? Well, yeah, he is, because he ain't going to give no money to the poor. What's he going to do with the money? He's going to keep it for himself. He's lying. He's making this whole story up right there. What does Mary understand? She understands that Jesus is going to what? He's going to die. He said it right there. She may keep it for the day of my burial. She understands it. I have a question for you. Did the disciples ever understand that? They didn't get it. How many times did Jesus tell the disciples... They're going to take me. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. They're going to bury me. And I'm going to rise from the dead. How many times did he have to tell them that? And they did, they, they did not get it, even to the point that when he was killed and buried, the disciples were hiding. They didn't run to the tomb that Easter Sunday morning. No, none of them believed there would be no body in the tomb. But the women went there, remember? So the disciples didn't believe it. So here's what's going on is they don't get it. And this woman, Mary, she gets it. She's coming in with the anointing for Jesus. Um, for Jesus. Now, <clears throat> the custom of perfuming a, a, a dead body is, is kind of a thing that's followed here. So what they would do is this. Um, when a loved one would die, they would take the body and they'd, they'd wrap them in, in strips of cloth. And then they'd put them in the tomb. They'd cover them with spices and perfumes. And why? Because the body would decompose and they, was, they wanted to cover the stench of death, decomposition. Do you remember we talked about Lazarus last week? When Jesus gets to the tomb and he says, roll the stone, and what does his sister Martha say? No, 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 no. It's been how many days? Four days. He's going to what? He's going to stink. His body is decomposing. Now, why don't you think about this? A thousand years before Jesus dies and rides, rides from the dead, David writes in Psalm 16, 10, he says, you, Father, will not allow your Holy One, Jesus, to undergo decay. A thousand years before, that prophecy is written that Jesus will not undergo decay. So he's in there three days, his body has not decayed, and so here comes this woman there, and so she... And so the point I think this making here is that this perfume will not be needed for him in the tomb because he will not decay. Because he'll be gone by the third day. So it's needed right now to anoint him while he's still alive, but for the burial that's coming up. Does that make sense? 
And so she's coming in with that perfume right now. Now, let me give you a, a, a new thought. In verse, uh, verse uh, uh, for the poor, you always have with you. Verse 8. <clears throat> the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What's, what's he saying? He's saying this. It's a really good life principle. Mary understands that there's a window of opportunity, and it's very narrow, huh? It's very narrow that you have this opportunity right now to do this and you better do it while the window's there. That's true in life, huh? I mean, we, we could all probably share stories in our own life of things we regret when the window of opportunity was there and we didn't step through it. But we should have stepped through it. I think we all have stories. I, I have stories like that. So she knows it's a very narrow window of opportunity. And she's going to take advantage of the opportunity. Of the opportunity. And, you know, let me give you another uh, a thought on that whole window of opportunity. One of my favorite statements, uh, quotes by the now deceased famous coach John Wooden of UCLA, he had this statement he made. And I thought, it's so true. He goes, he goes, when the window of opportunity presents itself, it's too late to prepare. It's too late to prepare. You should have been preparing, preparing, preparing in your life, not knowing when the window is going to open. So when the window does open, you're ready to step through that door because you've been preparing for years, whatever it's been in your life, to walk through that door. And I, I like that idea right there. Now, she uses perfume, window of opportunity, pour it on his feet. She used it to show how much she valued Jesus because it's her dowry. It's one year's worth of wages, right? And she's showing the value that she has, that how much she values Jesus. Think of it like this. Let's say you all have $5 million. You all happier now? Okay. You have $5 million. But on the sad side, let's say all of us who have $5 million, we have a fatal disease and we have three months to live. And so I have, these, I have $5 million, but I have a fatal disease on three months to live. And, and, and somebody comes up to you and says, I have got the cure. I've got the cure for your disease. But my cure costs $4,999,000. Would you pay it? I would. Because what's the point of, of money if I can't live? Right? What good does that do me? See, the value of life is worth it, that I would pay that right there. See, I think Mary understands the value of that death and potential resurrection coming. And she understands how much it's worth. And she's able to pour out that perfume. And she's able to value Jesus. And it doesn't matter what it costs her. Because she understands what it's going to bring, not just to herself, but to everyone on planet Earth, potentially that it opens the door to salvation. And so she's able to give that whole thing right there and lay it all down for him. <clears throat> now, verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews that then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Wouldn't you like to see some? That guy was dead, I want to see him. You know, they come and check that guy out. See Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Uh-oh, Lazarus was alive, died, brought him back from the dead. Now they want to kill him again. I mean, a guy can't catch a break, can he? <laughs> Verse 11, because on account of him, 
Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So now because of Lazarus and his transformed life, resurrection life, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That should be the same thing for you and I, right? When people rub up against us and see us, they see the transformed life, they should have the questions and think like, okay, what's different about you? I think that's the whole point of it right there. Now, think about what's happening now in Jesus' life. It says that the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, correct? Now people are knowing where Jesus is at. Where is his location? Now it puts him in more danger because they know where Jesus is at in that moment. I think... We're coming to the last straw now for sure. And I think the last straw for Judas was when Jesus told him, leave her alone. I think when Jesus told Judas, leave her alone, I think for Judas, that was it. And now he's going to run to the religious leaders and he's going to set up the meeting to to betray Jesus. So I think that was it. So now comes a moment in time where Jesus will now show himself to the world. Because earlier, if you remember in John 7, when, remember when his brother said, why don't you come to Jerusalem and show yourself to the whole world? He said, my time's not yet come. Well, now the time has come. Now the moment is here. So here we go. That's point five. Oh, yeah. Real quick, loud, because it's, it's recording. Quick question. What, he got paid 30 pieces of silver, right? Mm-hmm. What is that in, in relation to... 300 denarii? Yeah. I'd have to go back and look it up. I can't remember off the top of my head. But his whole thing was just money, period, I think. He just wanted money. See? And then to fulfill the prophecy of the pieces of silver that he sold for. Now, number five, point five, the mob misses the point. Now, the crowd, the mob misses the point. Uh, verse 12 says this. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Okay. Jesus now comes in on Palm Sunday. There are worshipers lined up along the street there. They are there for Passover, but also they're there for Jesus. As he comes in, they are waving palm branches. This is a very, very important little symbol right there. Now, they yell the word Hosanna. Now, what does Hosanna mean? It means save us, but save us right now. In other words, this is urgent. Question, what kind of salvation or what did they mean by Jesus save us? What salvation were they looking for, this crowd of Jews? They're looking for him to lead an overthrow of the Romans, right? This is what they're looking for. We want our nation of Israel restored, and we want to overthrow the Romans. So they're waving palm branches. Now let's go back to chapter 10 in our minds. Do you remember that winter feast, and we talked about how that was Hanukkah? Do you remember that we talked about that? And we talked about a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He came into Jerusalem after being stopped by the Romans in Egypt. He's upset. And in 167 BC, he comes into the temple. He raids it. He takes it. He, uh, he slaughters pigs on the altar, spills pig blood, sets up an altar to Zeus in there. 
The whole thing is a picture of the Antichrist to come. Then a group of people the, led by Judas Maccabeus, they lead the revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And they finally get the temple back and they clean it out and they cleanse it and then they rededicate it on December 25th, 165 B.C. Remember that story right there? That's a true historical event. During the Maccabean Revolt, when they're fighting, these freedom fighters are fighting Antiochus Epiphanes to get back their temple, the symbol of their country at that time became the palm branch. The palm branch became like their flag, the Israelis' flag, as they're fighting back this Syrian ruler, this Seleucid Antiochus Epiphanes IV. So as they're waving palm branches, understand, they are thinking, we're going to have another revolt, and we're going to overthrow the Romans, and Jesus is going to be like Antiochus, um, like Judas Maccabeus. But did they miss the point? Yes, because Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He came to conquer sin, he came to conquer Satan, and he came to bring salvation. They missed the whole point. So that's why possibly some of these people who are yelling Hosanna right now, maybe a few days later, some of them will be yelling crucify, crucify. They shift because Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. I'm not saying they all would be that person, but some of them might have been. They might have shifted gears like that, very fickle people. Now look at verse 14. Jesus finding a young donkey set on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is riding in on a little donkey, guys. Can you imagine a 33-year-old man riding in? Can you imagine how goofy that looks? He's coming in on this little, little donkey. It's not the mother, it's the little donkey, okay? And to make matters really even funnier, when a Roman general would ride into Rome after conquering, he would ride in on a white stallion. So can you imagine when the Roman soldiers, if any of them saw Jesus riding in on that little donkey and everybody's going, Hosanna, Hosanna. Can you imagine what they thought? What are these goofy Jews doing out here, man? Look at this thing right here. So here comes Jesus. He's riding on this, on this, little, on this little donkey. Now, <clears throat> why? Why? Well, I think humility won, right? But what was the prophecy? Zechariah 9.9, 500 years earlier. Behold, your king rides in on a little foal of a donkey. 500 years ago, that prophecy was written. And so that's why he's riding in exactly the way he's riding in. Now, he found the donkey. Oh, no. He told the disciples where to find the donkey, right? Jesus always knew where to find the donkey. Now, here's what's interesting about that donkey. Luke chapter 19, verse 30. Luke writes of this particular little donkey that no one has ever sat on it before. Why is that interesting? Because you think about Jesus' life. He was born out of a virgin womb, correct? He was buried in a virgin tomb, correct? No. And now he's riding on the back of a little donkey that's never been ridden on before. It's a virgin back. And you see this in Jesus' life every way. But here's even, even if you drill down more in this whole thing, to be used for sacrifice, animals, in the Old Testament, the animal had to be an animal that had never been used for work. 
this little baby donkey. And this little baby donkey has never been used for things before. And here he's carrying Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Isn't that something? All these pieces, the way they just come together. I really like stuff like that. Now, let me read verses 16 through 19, and then let me take you to Genesis 49 to put a capper on everything tonight. It says, These things his disciples did not understand at first. You think? But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. We always understand a reverse. Man, I wish it weren't so. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So they're all coming after him. We'll see next week the Greeks are coming. That means the whole world's coming. Now, I want to close on this thought. You you know, we're not not coming back to to John. Just go to Genesis 49. I want to show you a prophecy. It's an interesting prophecy. Genesis chapter 49. Verse 10. We'll look at verse 10 and verse 11. Now this prophecy, written down by Moses probably 3,400 years ago, but spoken by Jacob about 3,900 years ago, because we know Moses wrote the first books of the law, first five books. <clears throat> so this is, this is spoken 1,900 years before Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that little foal of a donkey. These particular two verses, because Jacob is giving each one of his sons a prophetic statement. And when you study these in detail, they're very interesting. But this is the one he gives to his son, Judah. Question, what line does Jesus come through of those sons of Jacob? Judah. Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he's going to come through this line. So watch what the dad says prophetically. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal, oh, there it is, huh? To the vine. How does Jacob know that? And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. How does he know that? He washes his garments in wine, meaning red like blood, and his robes in the blood of grapes. We know that too. We know in Revelation when he comes back in the second coming, he'll have a robe dipped in blood. We know that. And we know he'll shed his blood for all of mankind. But think of what Jacob is speaking prophetically 1,900 years before the moment that Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday on that little foal of a donkey. And people tell me this is written by man. Are you kidding me? No man could have written this book. So, Judah is the line that Jesus will come to. Shiloh, when it says in verse 10, Shiloh. Shiloh 
Um, gosh, I, when we get to Pilate, I'll explain a lot more about Shiloh and the scepter, and it will be fascinating, and Shiloh and the scepter. But right now, I'd rather save it for, for that time. Um, Shiloh is the Messiah to come. Shiloh literally means the one who brings peace. We know that Jesus will bring peace, right? And so now we see this whole picture. He's coming down to the line of Judah. He is the Messiah. He will bring peace. And he will tie his little foal, the little foal of a donkey, to the vine. The vine is Israel. But not only that, he is going to tie the donkey, the mom of the foal, to the choice vine. And we know Jesus is the choice vine because Jesus said, I am the true vine. And so you see all these, these statements coming together prophetically, fulfilling in this moment when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Now remember back about four weeks ago, I said that to piece it all together, remember when Nehemiah um, is going to go back to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and he gets a decree from Artaxerxes, you can go back and rebuild the wall. Remember we talked about that? And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, around March 14, 445 B.C., Nehemiah goes to rebuild the wall. And that starts the clock, 483 years of years. And if you start the clock from there to the moment that Jesus gets here on Palm Sunday, it's exactly, and this guy did the math on it, 173,880 days to the day. So when Jesus comes in this moment right now, right in on Palm Sunday, and he looks over the city and he cries, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you known, had you known this day, had you just counted, not only that, had you looked at Genesis 49, you knew I would tie the foal of the donkey. You knew that Shiloh was coming. You knew all these things. And here it is right now, prophetically, to the day, everything coming together, everything orchestrated, and they missed it. And they missed it. But the great thing is this, that God orchestrated everything. It was all written beforehand. And it came true, even to the day. To the day. And that's how God has control of all of our lives. He has it all orchestrated. And we don't have to panic. And we don't have to worry. Because it's all our, God's got it under control. Amen? Okay, we're going to pause right there. So let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you do have it all in control. As you hold all the planets and all the stars and all these galaxies and everything, all on their course, you hold our life on course. Thank you that your word is so true. It's a supernatural word. Because how could these things be prophetically stated and come to pass after so many thousands of years and to the day? And so specific, so specific. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all this and all your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to serve you. We get to minister to you. We get to give to you, Lord. Thank you. And thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.